Hello, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Radical Thoughts Podcast. In this episode, I interview Jean Bajalon, a professor of Middle Eastern History at Missouri State University, an alumni of the Michael Brooks Show, and an editor for the upcoming Diet Soap Media Empire. We discuss the need for a realistic and concrete understanding of political events and the shortcomings of the popular conceptions of international relations on the contemporary left. Right now you're listening to 22 Ghosts 3 by Nine Inch Nails, but in a second you'll hear our discussion about international politics and understanding the role of the state. I have on the show Jean Bajalon, who works as a uh, professor of history. He also is a commentator on international relations, and he is working with Douglas Lane at the new Diet Soap Project, and he's our guest on the podcast this evening. So thank you very much for joining. Thank you so much for inviting me. I was excited to have you on in part because, um, I mean... I'm friends with uh, Varn and, you know, I've come on Von Vlog, he's come on here and I've seen you on his show and in some of the, you know, kind of in that, those networks with uh, This Is Revolution and stuff. And I think it is really important for leftists to be looking at the state and to be looking at international relations and to be looking at the history of, of kind of global politics um, and kind of concrete, you know, politicking rather than just this abstract theory of politics and that's something that's been bugging me with some of the stuff that we've been reading on the podcast in particular reading some of the theorists like Baudrillard or Paul Virilio or Althusser just trying to think through what it actually means to have a left theory of politics a left engagement with politics and I'm, I'm particularly annoyed by certain functionalist theories of politics which I think gets you in a trap of whatever happens, it just ends up being that that's what the state wanted because the state has the power and the state determines how things happen because it's the state. So if something happens, it's because the state wanted it to happen. Um, so I've been interested in, in, in listening to your appearances on things because you're, you're, you have a strong interest in what states actually are as, as relations and the kind of political trajectories and involvements of state at a much more realistic level and the kind of contradictions that happen internally and externally. So uh, I, I, that's a, a big broad in <laughs> vomiting a bunch of stuff at you. W- how would you say that the left has so far tended to approach these issues? And what do you think are the maybe insights, but also weaknesses of how it continually frames political issues and and the issues of state involvement internally or externally for for leftists, at least here in the US, or I'm in the UK, but in the kind of Western Anglosphere. Sure. So um, I come to this question from the perspective of a historian, somebody who was trained as a historian, somebody who's worked in archives, someone who's worked extensively in state archives, looking at bureaucratic discussions, looking at, for example, consular reports, looking at, um, you know, diplomatic memorandums and and other documents of that that type. And I think when you do that, 
neat theorization begins to break down a little bit. That doesn't mean some of the observations made by theories are incorrect necessarily, but that we should nuance them. And I think there is a tendency amongst some elements of the left to see nuance as a bad word, to see it as something that is, you know, you're trying to explain or you're trying to justify something by, you know, injecting nuance into it. Uh, and there's a kind of desire to want to fit things into a very caricatured picture of uh, of how state power works. Um, and, and especially in the United States, it's almost a moralistic uh, uh, approach to the question uh, in that, you know, the dominant narrative in the United States is one of American, uh, the essential moral goodness of Americans. And, you know, you can transpose that argument, of course, onto um, the um, British left as well. You know, like our country is inherently good. If we do something bad, it's by accident. Um, but uh, the problem when people critique this is often they just uh, turn into the inverse, where, you know, everything that happens is bad uh, in a moral sense, right? Uh, there's some evil conspiracy behind it. And at times, there's this notion that there's, there's this omnipotent octopus sort of brain at the center of uh, uh, global capitalism in an almost conspiratorial way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you end up with a, a, a critique, which is not 100% wrong, but which does not necessarily provide the most accurate picture about, for example, how foreign policy is formulated, uh, conducted and executed. Uh, one that flattens factional differences that exist within the ruling class. And sometimes these factional differences can be quite substantial and can have uh, material bases to them. Let me give you an example. There are certain factions on, on, on the left who uh, see any criticism of China or any even sort of discussion of, let's say, Chinese labor practices or human rights issues in China or what have you, right, as, being fe as feeding into a Cold War narrative that is being driven by the American political elite and the American state. There are two problems with this. Firstly, you know, whether or, you know, even if some of the things that, you know, even if, let's say, uh, the reason that certain American elites might be emphasizing Chinese human rights issues is cynical, which it clearly is cynical, uh, because, you know, you don't see them raising the same issues in countries which they have good relations with. But, um, uh, even if it is cynical, uh, it doesn't mean that the critiques aren't based in reality. They may be exaggerated, but there may be issues with that, right? And I and I don't think it's a good idea uh, as leftists to to you know dismiss these kind of issues straight off the bat. But the more important problem is that I think it ignores the factional differences within the American ruling class over the approach towards China, right? 
I think it's uh, there is a faction that wishes to put, push for a cold war, but a cold war doesn't necessarily mean a hot war. There are probably factions that would like to see a hot war over chi- uh, Taiwan. There are factions that might cynically wish to push the cold war agenda in order to extract resources from the state, the defense industries. For example, it would make sense for the defense industries to hype up the threat of China in order to increase the military budget as it does every year. But then there are also factions uh, amongst the commercial bourgeoisie that would like to maintain a good relationship or a functional relationship with China, because of course they have strong material economic interests in keeping you know, the flow of cheap Chinese products into the United States uh, to support their businesses. So, you know, when we look at discourse, uh, American, you know, when we talk about the American states, the American states, inverted commas, attitude towards uh, China, I think it's a good idea to uh, have a nuanced perspective, not to say that, oh, you know, the Americans don't have negative opinions of China, America's not, but rather to look at the differing uh, material uh, interests that uh, affect, um, you know, the disposition of different elements of the ruling class towards the question of China, which is a major, which is a major question today. This, like, America's bad, and the American elite want to go uh, to war with China, is not a particularly helpful uh, analytical tool if you actually want to understand what's driving. Uh, you know, American policy towards China. And um, yeah, I think we should we should realize there is nuance, there's factionalism, and there are different material interests that exist within the ruling class. And, you know, perhaps those, you know, those things can be taken advantage of by the left. I'm not a left strategist or theorist by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but I do firmly believe that having uh, rather than having a sort of caricatured perspective of how, let's say, for example, the example I'm giving is China, for example, how American policy towards China is developed and what American attitude, state attitudes and ruling class attitudes are towards China, instead of having a caricatured perspective of that, having an, uh, a, a nuanced and accurate perspective of that is better because it provides us with better and more honest information from which we on the left can develop our own attitudes and policies. That last point is especially useful in terms of, I think, if you're on the left in a specific country, uh, particularly if you're in a you know a high income, whatever whatever adjective you use to denote you know a high income nation or a global north nation or, or something like that, I, I, I sometimes have gotten frustrated with because of you know the obvious feeling of moral import to some of these things, which obviously it's like, yeah, you, you there, it's good to have a kind of moral outrage at some level about the hypocrisy of certain American policies or, or what, what goes on, um, uh, the destruction of other countries and things like that. But sometimes this feeling that if you're not talking about how heroic and important other places are all the time, then you're not serious as a, as a leftist, which to me, the frustration of that is not because it's wrong to uh, want to understand what's happening with struggles elsewhere, but it's that if you want to strategically think about your own actions, part of what you need to focus on is what's going on in your own state. Um, and, and to think about if you're going to link up with any sort of strategic action, what you're going to be opposing is a much more concrete relation to your state's 
policies, your state's actions and incentives, how it's receiving money, how it's formulating its own strategies. And that at the end of the day, you know, it's good to understand uh, what's happening elsewhere in relation to that, but it's also not enough to just say, you know, we just need to champion some people over there doing things. And I think it's also, it can also lead to, with the example of something like China, I, I think it's kind of funny that sometimes there, there can be a double game of China is obviously opening itself up globally since, you know, for, for a couple of decades now, um, it's been opening itself up to trade. It's been kind of modernizing its infrastructure and its political relationships, which on the one hand, even, you know, pro-China leftists will, will champion us, you know, it's, it's making these modernizing steps. It's, it's becoming a modern nation. It's becoming a power. But on the other hand, they still tend to treat it as if it has a purely isolationist relationship to U.S. policy and to U.S. like trade and, and things. So, so it, it gets treated as like, oh no, it, it it's totally walled off to the interests of the U.S. It's totally walled off to anything you know happening there. But um, you'll you'll see something about uh, one of the um, people who I think wrote a, a critical piece about you know labor movement actions in China. Uh, I think through Shuang Journal, maybe um, not in the Shuang Collective, but you know related to them. You know there was a big outrage when he was found out he had some sort of connection to the Henry Kissinger, you know, Institute for Relationships between U.S. and China. But it's like if you look at that institute, there's a ton of Chinese academics and politicians and stuff who are related through that institute because it's a connecting source. And, and that's not to say that it doesn't have potentially sketchy interests as an institute and incentives. But it's also most people who have an interest in studying China from the U.S. are probably going to be connected to some sort of university or political organ that funds doing research in China. So it's it's a little bit hard to like expect there to be <laughs> a, a, no connection at all if you, if you're someone who is from the U.S. and wants to study the Chinese language and the Chinese economy and Chinese labor actions and Chinese policies you're probably going to have some sort of connection to that and understanding how you're going to sift through when those connections are maybe highly motivated by business interests, by state interests, what those interests will be is a lot more complex than just thinking that, oh, this person got some money from the US, they're obviously a plant to ruin everything, or this other person only talks about things that they pick up through Chinese news sources and then just repeats them. And that means they're, you know, heroic, like it's a lot more complex. And, and I think with, with this issue in specific, you know, I was really impressed hearing um, Kaiser, Kaiser Kuo um, on Varnvlog, like, and, and some of the sources and kind of breakdowns of how you can understand these kind of media outlets that are trying to talk back and forth between these two nations. Like it's, it's, it's kind of a fascinating relationship in and of itself, like how that gets determined and, you know, what it means to have media in, in two, two nations that have a, a particularly difficult um, linguistic barrier in terms of what goes on there. But yeah, I think that kind of like treating these kind of political issues as islands elsewhere, where it's all going to get resolved over there, and that's going to flow in over here, rather than seeing it as co-constituent in terms of your own involvement and which requires strategizing on the ground where you're at to some extent is a is a difficult issue for for any i think in in general that's a difficulty of politics it's a difficult thing to think of at that broad level but the us left at least seems pretty 
unused to that kind of thinking is my experience. Yeah, I would, um, I would certainly, uh, I would certainly agree, uh, with that. I think, um, you can't isolate these issues from one another. I understand, for example, the impetus among some members of the U.S. left to have an aversion to talking and critiquing things that happen in other countries. I can understand that. You know, it's it's an, a completely logical response to the enormous weight of propaganda that is uh, pushed forward. And I understand also the suspicion of sources, you know, as a historian, one of the things you have to do is assess the validity of sources, how accurate they are, read between the lines. But an important thing to understand is when constructing historical narratives, sometimes the issue is not whether or not somebody is lying or not lying. It's what is emphasized and what is not emphasized. So you might have, uh, let's say, for example, conservative institutions, you might have conservative institutions uh, who perhaps back research on China, which presents, let's say, negative uh, uh, images of China. That research might actually be quite accurate, right? But of course, it's it's only presenting part of a story because they're not supporting the research that shows, for example, in other areas, in other fields that, you know, Chinese people might be quite happy with some of the rural development projects that have been done, or Chinese people are quite supportive of the government because of the material benefits that the Chinese government has brought. So, of course, when constructing a narrative, you know, the question is often not outright lying versus, you know, uh, uh, truth, but what gets selected into the process of being researched, being forwarded, being presented, being uh, shown in the newspaper. So, you know, uh, if you want to consider, if you're, if you're, uh, uh, if you were in a, uh, any country, you could, you could pick up all the negative events in a country and present uh, a picture of that country as some totalitarian hellhole. You could do that with almost any country in the entire world through just the selection of what news stories you see, you choose to forward and which news stories you cho choose to downplay or how you choose to frame uh, particular stories. So we have to be savvy consumers of that news. Now, I'm not an expert on China, but, you know, like uh, it's important, I think, to have a kind of uh, uh, a smart perspective and try and understand where different perspectives are coming from, if the information is accurate. And secondly, and this is a discussion I had, for example, with one of my one of my hardcore Trotskyist friends, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 my hardcore Trotskyist friend is not like these uh, weak um, uh, weak uh, Western Trotskyists who are just basically just social democrats with Trotsky posters. He's like a hardcore China is a deformed worker state Trotskyist. And we were discussing the Uyghur uh, issue, and I'm—I don't, you know, know, you know, how true these stories are, uh, or you know, like what's exaggerated, what's real, you know, this that, and the other. I'm not in a position to make a judgment on that. But the point I made to him, I was like, look, even if, you know, you're you're telling me that like all this stuff about the Uyghurs is is uh, false, okay, but even if it's it was all true it wouldn't really change our fundamental desire not to have a Cold War with China, right? You know, like, it. so from my perspective, whether the Uyghurs are brutally oppressed 
or whether it's or just a development program is kind of secondary because at the end of the day, we're not in China. And the last thing we need to do is to promote a cold war with China. So whether it's false or not is kind of, a, a, and, and this may sound a bit cold, is kind of irrelevant to, let's say, our posture towards China in the United Kingdom or United States, because anything that the United Kingdom and the United States did to inverted commas, help the Uyghurs on the ground would probably make the situation much, much worse. Right. So, you know, maybe we could advocate for like, okay, more refugees should come to our countries as a general sense. And that could include Uyghur refugees or what have you. Right. But like beyond that, whether or not, you know, there's a brutal repression going on in in, in Xinjiang is kind of wouldn't change one's attitude towards whether or not we would support a, a, a Cold War with China. And I think uh, I think that's an important you know that's an important thing to recognize, right? We shouldn't we shouldn't feel a political need to defend things that seem pretty unsavory taking place in other parts of the world. You know, I don't I don't see a contradiction between, for example, saying that you know, uh, for example, maybe the Cuban government have done some things wrong, uh, but at the end of the day, America shouldn't be having a embargo against mm. Cuba. America should be opening up uh, the borders to Cuba. And even if the Cuban regime has some negative aspects to it, then, uh, you know, if we're so worried about negative aspects, why don't we do a little bit more about Saudi Arabia, which is far worse than Cuba, mm-hmm. than, uh, than uh, the United States, expose that kind of hypocrisy. So, you know, I don't have a kind of uh, a need to uh, defend or condemn regimes around the world, right? You know, uh, there is a political position that you can take towards these things, which is related towards your country's posture to them, right? So, like, maybe Nicolas Maduro is not a great leader for Venezuela, but none of that justifies the United States putting the country on embargo, uh, under embargo, and basically exacerbating the economic deterioration in that country. Uh, we actually have, you know, by even saying that, we can say, like, look, this is this is actually you complaining, you know, liberals and conservatives complaining about so-called human rights issues in these countries is really like a, a, a separate issue from what the state's policy is towards these countries and the deleterious effect of those policies towards uh, those those countries. So... I don't have, you know, I don't have an aversion to critiquing or like discussing in a like concrete way. And I trust leftists to, you know, understand the difference between saying like, yeah, it's maybe not a paradise in North Korea, (laughs) but at the same time saying like a war or escalation by the United States with North Korea is bad. Often the discourse I hear from the left, uh, when you mention any of this, is that you're just priming the left to support war with North Korea, China, Venezuela, and things like that. And I actually think this is a very condescending way to look at leftists as if, you know, like they're so stupid that like they can't hold two thoughts in their head that maybe North Korea was not like the socialist paradise that the government portrays that, while at the same time saying that uh, having a war with North Korea would be catastrophic and disastrous 
for not only the North Korean people, but for probably the entire population of North, you know, Northeast Asia, right? And so I, I find this kind of condescending uh, approach, like any any criticism of these countries uh, or any discussion of these countries based in, you know, anything that is not fawning uh, uh, praise for them is priming people to support, you know, war or sanctions and things like that. I find that as not particularly helpful and um, frankly, kind of condescending. If we lie about conditions in a particular country as the left for good political reasons, why would people trust us when they find out perhaps that the, the, the story that we've been spinning them is not, you know, is not true? And I think another issue with that kind of relates to that is um, that kind of difficulty of what, what does it mean to acknowledge that uh, leftists or socialists or communists in most Western countries are probably politically quite weakened, you know, because um, it's one of those things that it's like, it, I think that if every, like the vast majority of leftists in the U.S. as it exists started talking about how most of these, like, like a lot of these countries that are, are actually existing socialist states maybe aren't like what we would want to be true, pure communism in the future or something as like how they exist right now would have to be changed or developed or feature more, uh, more workers power or something like that. Like, I still don't think that would really change much of the American discourse at the moment. Like, I don't think that that is a deciding factor. And so discussing, yeah, like viewing it as an attempt to understand what's happening realistically, I think is uh, more important because it's from a perspective of weakness for a lot of these movements rather than viewing it as, oh, if we, if we change our opinion and, and are more critical um, even if it's not, you know, condemnation in in a totalizing sense, like that, that is going to cause a wave of <laughs> warmongering at exactly. a political level. Like, like uh, I, I, who's listening to us for us to do that? Exactly. I mean, I find that as like a very strange kind of argument. I mean, like, let's take, uh, you know, and there's, there's a kind of inverse to this, you know, we don't have to be completely critical of all these countries as well. You know, we can look at countries like Vietnam, Cuba, China, and say, hey, you know, there's actually things that those societies and those states do better than uh, the countries uh, in the West, right? You know, they, they are countries with state interests, with all these, uh, you know, factors in with one another. So, um yeah, it's it's a very kind of strange argument because I don't think, for example, if people were condemned, you know, like if people say like, oh, you know, there's some labor abuses taking place in China or Vietnam or wherever it is. I don't think suddenly all those people who say that would be like, we need to invade those countries <laughs> and liberate their workers using the U.S. military, right? And again... Like you say, no one's listening. The the left is super powerless, right? So that's like one aspect of it. And the other aspect is the American left is like super parochial, right? You know, it's um, 
most American leftists are like interested in domestic affairs. Mm -hmm. And when we do have discussions of foreign policy, they tend to be framed within this simple, simplistic, moralistic, good versus bad, right? And, and this leads to bizarre uh, and also a kind of inverse anti-Americanism, right? So for example, you know, I can get why a leftist might, for example, uh, defend Vietnam or China, right? Those are at least nominally socialist states. But you have people on the political left defending Putin, defending Assad, defending the Islamic Republic of Iran, which are not even nominally leftist regimes. They're right-wing regimes. They just happen to be counter-hegemonic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that would be the equivalent of, you know, I mean, it's not an exact equivalent, but like being, you know, being in the United States and in the 1930s and defending, let's say, Japan, because it's because Japan is count is counter hegemonic to the United States, but ignoring you know the kind of the imperial policies of Japan as well. These are two capitalist powers. One is weaker. One is stronger. Uh, one is you know hegemonic. One is counter hegemonic. But neither of them are like revolutionary powers, right? Yeah. Russia is not a revolutionary power. Iran is not a revolutionary power. Uh, Assad's regime is not a, a revolutionary. Uh, revolutionary power. They are right-wing regimes that have fallen out with the with the kind of uh, American-dominated world order. Uh, and again, as uh, people on the American uh, left, we should not be supporting escalation with these countries, right? We should be supporting diplomatic engagement, opening up relations, normalization, and those kind of things. But we shouldn't be deluding ourselves about what the character of these regimes are. I see people on, you know, people, particularly with regards to Iran and um, uh, uh, Syria, people on the political left in the West, basically buying into state propaganda and having, you know, you, you know, platforming, you know, spokesmen for these regimes and softballing them. I don't have a problem with platforming anybody, to be honest, but softballing these kind mm -hmm. of people. You know, it's kind of it's kind of ridiculous. And then if you critique this, you're suddenly a CIA tool, so it's a tool of the, you know, uh, uh, imperialism, blah blah blah. Uh, and the irony is, you know, like you go to a place like Iran, the left, the leftists in Iran hate the regime, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, because because that doesn't fit into the narrative of America bad, and uh, if you oppose America, ipso you know, de facto you're a good a good guy those people get like pushed out of the conversation or uh, at best or or at worst you know condemned as being you know american stooges and tools as if they have no agency yeah i think i think that also points to a difficulty in terms of the left has never had a fair uh, the, uh, the left has always struggled with a, a sense of like how do you build um, some kind of unity around the capacity to have disagreement and critical debate about about certain things? Um, the because uh, I think it's it's always a struggle of like on the one hand, I feel like there's a the kind of behavior that you're describing is usually accompanied with this long bemoaning about how there's no no left unity. Um, you know, the, 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 the left can't be unified. It can't have serious conversations, but also 
all these actors are bad faith CIA, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like there's an easy, an easy out for any disagreement about like why it might happen. Um, but on the other hand, you also can have this highly, you know, these little sectlet sectarian groups that have this, oh, well, we've got this highly theoretical thing that lets us understand that everything is just this bad capitalist system and we don't have to talk about, you know, the, the reality of what political action looks like beyond this kind of abstract critique, which I mean, I'm, I'm myself a more towards the quote unquote left calm kind of position in a lot of ways, but of honest. Yeah. 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 The left of center calm, but not full left calm calm is the, the term that I sometimes use. But yeah, it's it, at the same time, it's like you want to be able to actually engage uh, with kind of the realities and conflicts on the ground and be able to actually talk with someone and not mm-hmm. instantly come off as an absolute insane crank. Um, right. And and that that it, it's one of the things that's like if you're going to talk all the time about the importance of, you know, the contradiction for the dialectic or whatever, like looking at the contradiction means looking at the divisions and actual forces of, of interested factions in a way that's not just that it's all bad um, or that it's all obviously like incapable of being discussed. Well, Americans are so Americans and to a lesser extent Brits are so driven by this. uh, It's, there's such an ingrained ideology that, uh, you know, there's a good but good guy and bad guy version of history. And in the end, the good guys, you know, will win and things like that. And I think that moralism does sometimes like push people not to examine those contradictions that exist uh, uh, within capitalism and within within imperial policy, within foreign policy, uh, which, you know, you might say that that's a secondary order issue because imperialism is still imperialism. Right. America is still an imperial country, which, you know, yes, like the meta critique that America is an imperialist country and that, you know, America is trying to control markets and resources around the world. is kind of true. But I think we need to like have an accurate picture of how that is done mm-hmm. rather than like a caricature picture, like that there's some guy in Washington pulling all the levers and like organizing coups everywhere and things like that. It, it, on one hand, that could, you know, that takes away the agency of plenty of local reactionaries who are perfectly mm-hmm. capable of eliminating their own leftists for their own concrete material interests. Like, for example, with the Bolivian coup, uh, you know, I don't know what we will see in 10, 15 years when we see CIA papers come out. But, you know, it's perfectly plausible that the Bolivian ruling class executed that coup, uh, clue, you know, the capitalist class executed that coup without, you know, the CIA pulling all the strings mm-hmm. behind them because they have their own concrete material interests in doing that, that America might be kind of happy that that coup takes place. That's a, you know, that's a secondary issue. But when we talk about agency, we need to be a little bit more nuanced about how these, you know, how, uh, how, how these things come to be uh, on the ground. Very uh, like a good example is the Iraq war. Like Iraq was a war for oil, which kind of it is right. But it's like not a war for oil in the way that people think yeah. that it was a war for oil because the American companies didn't end up getting all the oil contracts in Iraq. It was given out to Russians, Italians, you know, Europeans, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so yeah, like they probably wouldn't have invaded Iraq if there'd be no oil. Nobody cares about, you know, like a country without uh, natural resources, but there are a whole number of different factors 
uh, motivating different elements of the ruling class to engage in that war. For example, uh, as my friend uh, Kuba, uh, who's also you know in the TIR family, says, it's like one of the big things was kicking open the U.S. Treasury so that you know taxpayers' money or printed money could be uh, siphoned off to the contracting industry, uh, and they could make a lot of money uh, from logistics services to the U.S. military. Uh, and if you want to see where the Afghanistan and Iraqi construction aid went to, it's North Virginia with all these mansions that people have built uh, through this big kind of extraction scheme. When we talk about the spread of democracy, that was a real thing. You know, ideology uh, uh, plays things. There was an idea that, like, if they could overthrow Iraq, they drank their own Kool-Aid. They believed they could knock it over, turn it into a formerly bourgeois democratic neoliberal state, and that would, like, have a knock-on effect and create a lot, a, a bunch of pro, uh, you know, pro-American, you know, neoliberal regimes across the Middle East and sort of you know, blow away the last kind of vestiges of sort of uh, state socialism or, you know, state capitalism that existed in, in places like Syria or Egypt and places like that, which are already going on, undergoing a neoliberal tra transformation through this process of infita opening, which was, a, you know, like, which was a big policy that even Saddam Hussein in the late 1980s uh, was engaging in. So, you know, there's a lot, you know, so... That the, Amer the Iraq war was for oil is true. That is only like a kind of partial picture. And we need to understand what is driving this. It strikes me as equally important to like, uh, uh, like uh, opening up Iraqi resources is the fact that the war provide this context for, um, you know, a huge transfer of wealth to the military industrial complex mm -hmm. uh, as well from the American people. In a way, the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war you know, the Iraqis and the uh, um, Afghans were merely collateral damage in a project designed to loot the United States. So, you know, these are, these, are, these are the kind of complexities that, you know, I hope we can bring up when we talk about imperial policy. What that means for left strategy and things like that, I don't know. But I, mm -hmm. think, uh, I think you pointed to something. It's like we need to move away from this, like, hypersectarianism that you know is brought up over all kinds of things. Like if you are a little bit critical of any non-American regime, suddenly you're condemned as a, a, a CIA activist or like a, you know like a plant and things like that. You know we have to be a little bit more humane to one another. There was a, for example, there was an article recently I read in which the author proclaimed anarchists in the 1960s to actually be a CIA front because they found like one magazine yeah. had been had been like funded by CIA. Uh, that was such a dishonest framing because look, the entire left wing of the United States from the Maoists to the Stalinists to the Trotskys, they were all infiltrated by the FBI mm -hmm. and CIA. And they were all, you know, one of the reasons the Panthers collapsed was because there was so much infiltration, right? So you nobody was like free of infiltration. Mm -hmm. So like condemning an ideology as being a CIA operation is not very helpful. Let's have like a discussion within the family. If people are discovered to be plants or are acting in bad faith, that's one thing. But you know this uh, this hypersectarianism is super not helpful, especially at a time when the uh, American 
left is so weak, right? You know, you divide your forces more and more over issues that ultimately come down to, comes down to are pretty peripheral. Like, for example, like, if we all agree that it's not a good idea to have a Cold War with China, whether we disagree about, you know, what's going on with the Uyghurs, it's like a minor, that's like actually comes out as a kind of minor uh, disagreement, right? Because it doesn't affect anyone's fundamental stance. Right. It's China, uh, and it doesn't really have any influence on American domestic policy, which of course is where the American left needs to de deploy the majority of its organizational and emotional strength. One of the foregrounded things you should be focusing on with any discussion that is somewhat theoretical in a sense, theoretical in the sense that it's about a broader system of, of causes and effects and, and policies and things that you're not per se involved in at a direct level. Like the question is kind of like, does it tell you something about what uh, you should be doing? Even even if that that could be something about building rhetorical Propaganda, um, propaganda in the non-normative sense, in the in the technical sense, building, mm -hmm. you know, building the the capacity to if someone throws a, a political issue in your face, you can talk about it seriously and show that you know what you're talking about and why your political stance should be taken seriously. That's all like very good, even if that doesn't necessarily mean you are going to be involved in the national liberal <laughs> liberation struggle in X country, or that you are the deciding factor in in supporting, you know, the, whether it's the Uyghur issue or you know, what whatever uh, international issue. Like the kind of question is, what can you do? with uh, the, the information that you end up developing in a position that you end up taking on something. Exactly. Um, and I've been kind of thinking about that, honestly, with uh, right now, the UK schools are all going on strike um, uh, for a little while. Uh, LSE, where I'm at, is, I think, I think this is the first strike that they've actually joined um, with the, the academic staff. And I know that uh, a lot of the planned kind of teachings and events are things about kind of like the Palestinian struggles and stuff. Um, and that's always kind of a, a difficult issue is, is cause I'm, I'm on the one hand, I'm out here trying to be like the full, like get everyone to be revolutionary about it and to like take it seriously and, and think big about it. But on the other hand, you know, you have to think about what, what does the school actually do? And, 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 and that difficult issue of on the one hand, the school is clearly making a ton of money and revenue through underpaying staff and overcharging, uh, especially international students like me. That's, but, that's um, yeah, that's how that, that's how the, I mean, I, I went to the LSE, I did my master's degree at the LSE. Mm -hmm. And I remember in my program, there were like two British citizens. Yeah. Everyone else was a foreign student because of course, you know, they're, they're paying like triple. And yeah, it's probably yeah. worse. It's probably worse now. Cause I, I, I was there in 2004, 2005 uh it's probably a lot worse now the tuition is definitely you know it's something like twenty thousand for me exactly um and a lot of the people are you know a lot of south asian a lot of east asian a lot of american and canadian students um but but the issue is always kind of that on the one hand the school obviously has this huge amount of money and and it's also so tight you know it's the london school of economics and political uh, uh and, and political theory so it's um very much tied to you know consulting firms banks uh, it gets a lot of, you know, research money for economic, you know, interests. Um, it, it puts funding into, and, and, you know, it has assets that go into uh, 
issues with Palestine and Israel. It goes into arms manufacturing. It, it invests in oil. So it has all these issues. But at the same time, it, there's also that aspect of like the neoliberal project and the constraints of economic productivity that go into the structuring of education is not just an ideological issue to gain a bunch of money. Um, it's a mixture of they're using certain things to shore up financial stuff, but there's real pressures also put on schools that frame like why they do that and how, how they get concrete, like funding for certain things. So there's always that kind of like give and take about, you know, in some senses when they do make these shitty decisions, it can be due to a real constraint that's put on them, but it's also, there's all this other stuff that's going on. That's maybe not the most obvious issues going on about um, why they're underpaying staff or, or cutting down on pensions or something. Uh, the thing I've always been pushing for right now is I think that the main organizing principle should be really like transparency, because that's the thing is that we don't really know why they make all these decisions. So you can't respond very effectively to a lot of it without seeing what the books are and why, what the conversations are about why certain things get done and not other things. Mm -hmm. um, that's the, that's the issue that you can then try to make further organizing and further accountability keep happening is if you have more transparency to like know what the actions taken are um, and how they're related to, to both internationally broader issues that the school is complicit in through its funding and also the, the on the ground issues that it's taking in terms of the students and the staff and the actions taken. And, and also even things like, you know, how schools often fund these big fancy buildings that then are only serving the purpose of bringing in speakers and causing non-students to pay high fees to come see this event with this, like the speaker yeah. or the, like, there's that kind of issue too, that like, it's this kind of, you know, dredgifying, um, it's, tied it's, bro into it's branding. Living. It's branding. It's branding. Mm -hmm. It's the neo the neoliberal university is ultimately a big branding exercise. You know, like one of the things I found most funny and peculiar was when you know Cornell West wrote that letter about like what happened to Harvard. You know, like <laughs> it was. Uh, it's like my bro, that's what it is. You were that you know pet radical uh, that they have to bring in people. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, it was always this kind of institution you know these institutions you know they they have they like uh, academic rock stars right mm -hmm. and that's not ideological they can have a radical leftist so long as that person gets on the t tv mm -hmm. and um brings in students that pay fees right yeah so you know that's the that's one of the things you know as i live out here in missouri in provincial obscurity at a regional university you know, at least I'm not a academic rock star who's hmm. being, you know, who's serving to ensnare international students into paying high fees at, at, a, at an expensive university. But, you know, so that, that that's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of problems. We could probably talk for another hour yeah, about, yeah. about academia. I was going to say, like, I think that's, I'm curious, is the debate about, you know, Palestinian liberation at the school going to have real concrete issues about what it means to be at an institution involved in, in potentially involved in certain, you know, poli policy consultancy things, uh, funding things that's related, mm -hmm. or is it largely going to be, all, we want to show that all the staff and all the students can come up and talk about all the right bullet points about how bad this 
there's right i mean i i see this all as like uh and this is not a critique uh I, this is not a critique of you know people you know advocating for palestine i know there was a big hoo-ha about the israeli foreign minister coming in and people protesting outside but you know i think to a certain extent the political impotency of the left and more generally like the more precarious p- p- uh uh, position of uh, sort of the professional managerial classes in the sense of, you know, accredited university people uh, working in, you know, business and th- things like that. I'm, I'm not using it in the Marxian sense, but, you know, it's a kind of cultural move. I think we're all kind of like precarious and powerless. So we end up in this like endless virtue signaling battle with each other. And, you know, the right is always accusing the left of virtue signaling. But they are also virtue signaling, mm-hmm. like the entire woke versus anti-woke, pro-Palestine versus anti-Palestine, at least in the West, it just becomes this kind of circular, who has more virtue? You know, you're on the left, you virtue signal that you support Black Lives Matter. You're on the right, you go, ah, but this is all just a PMC thing. I'm not like those PMCs. I'm down with the working class that is, but, you know, it's like this kind of sad, sad cycle of like uh, debates that, ultimately don't really go very mm-hmm. far even with the palestine stuff it's like we're so impotent we can't even stop the british government like selling weapons to palestine and things uh think you know things like that mm-hmm. do you know what i mean it's like yeah. so we end up we end up in this kind of like uh twitterverse where people basically well you know to circle back to it it, bec- it becomes like uh we don't have any power to change our uh, country but we can yell at people for having the one wrong position on China or having the wrong position on the Syrian civil war. It's like, okay, but you know, like, where does that get us? Nowhere, but we feel good about it, right? We feel that we're doing politics. And you know, there's a contradiction, for example, with the rise of the online left is on one hand, it has led to networks growing that didn't exist before. It's led to the propagation of left-wing ideas on one hand, but on the other hand, it's led to this kind of cyber Leninism where like people believe that podcasters will serve as the vanguard of the proletariat, which is, you know, again, kind of a a ridiculous idea. It's led to the co-option of left-wing discourse into like a financial, uh, you know, into, into something that, you know, people have to make money out of. Right. And, you know, like I'm not begrudging anyone making money who produces content full time. Right. But, you know, the the commercial pressures can sometimes trump one's political sort of instincts. Right. Because, you know, you might take a line that is unpopular on the left uh, and that will cost you money. Right. So suddenly we have this financialization of politics, which, uh, you know, which serves to dictate um, people's position. And to, to some extent, I think that's the reason, that's one of the contributing factor to this kind of uh, uh, very simplistic in, uh, understanding of uh, uh, American foreign policy, because perhaps it doesn't pay on the left to try and be nuanced about what's going on. Perhaps it's just better to just say America bad. And, you know, like uh, every everything that's happening in the world is done by the CIA. And, you know, People like that, right? That 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 appeals to people's sort of inverted American exceptionalism. That America is this soup, you know, this is behind all bad things that happen in the world. When I don't see it like that, I see, you know, America is at the top of a pyramid of imperialist capitalist exploitation in the world, right? And the American uh, ruling class and the American state is, of course, riven with uh, factionalism, 
because there are different groups with different concrete material interests. And that's like the contradictions that exist within capitalism. But, you know, I guess it's just easier to present a black and white view and monetize people's like legitimate anger and hostility, uh, you know, brought about by this. Social media is driven by that kind of engagement, mm-hmm. right? That's how the political right operates. And you're beginning to see that, well, not beginning, but you're seeing that same uh, outrage economy developing uh, on the political uh, left. And I don't necessarily think it's cynical. I think, for example, content creators and their audiences uh, radicalize each other, right, to a certain extent. You know, it's not like, you know, I can't see into people's souls, but I, I don't believe, like, people sit there necessarily and, you know, very cynically make a calculation. But I think they kind of do, at least at some semi-subconscious level, you know, understand their audiences and they their mm-hmm. audience understand them and they sort of mutually radicalize and groom each other uh, to, to take more and more black and white and absurd and simplistic takes on things. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, that's definitely something I've been fascinated with. Um, I use the term the left book ideologists mm-hmm. um, uh, in the sense of the German ideologists and that there's a very... It's not, yeah, it's not that it's purely calculating, you know, like there's like some dude in a business suit managing a a Facebook page, but it's, there's a tendency to increasingly treat that there's an obvious, you know, like uh, that your, your, your theory and your framework of the world constitutes this one solid object that can be pointed out and say, that's the real thing right there. And there's no interrelationships or complexities that need to be figured out. Thank you very much for showing up. Uh, We're at an hour and I know you have to go. So thank you for coming on. And I hope that people who listen to this uh, think that it's a useful, complicated conversation that's useful for trying to think more more critically about like some of these issues and and trying to find real evidence for issues, real ways of discussing big uh, foreign policy and international issues without it just being a, a moral stance or throwing up your hands in the air and saying, I can't do anything about this or, or even look into it. So, well, I very much appreciate you for inviting me on, Patrick. It was a pleasure. <laughs> and I hope we speak again soon. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of the Radical Thoughts podcast. Our next major episode will be a discussion of On the Shores of Politics by Jacques Rancière. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. We hope you'll join us next time, and thank you for listening.